This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Hello, and welcome to my Monday night show. I'm Hannah Wilson, and tonight we're going to be talking all things secondary school science. Later on in the show, we'll be joined by Adam Boxer, who's going to be talking about his book, Teaching Secondary Science, A Complete Guide. If you have any questions, pop them in the chat, or if you want to call in and speak to him, you're more than welcome. In the meantime, I'm going to be joined by Lydia. This is Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Hello and welcome to the show. Uh, hi Lydia, can you hear me all right? Yeah, well, hopefully I'm, I'm coming through all right. Fabulous. So uh, we're going to be having a little bit of a chat about secondary science and then Adam's going to be joining us shortly um, to chat about his book, which you've been reading and I've been reading, which has been very interesting. Uh, tell us a bit about yourself and kind of your background. Um, so I'm a relatively new teacher in that this is about my third year teaching now, but I've but even before my um, teaching qualification, I worked in quite a few different schools. So I've worked in some specialist provisions, in some special needs schools, but I also went and did intervention in a, a range of different schools before I even went for my teacher training. So post-teacher training, I worked in a school in quite a deprived area um, with high levels of behaviour and all of those various different things going on. And last summer I moved schools to the school I'm currently at, which is a more rural school, um, quite a bit smaller. But it's it's nice to have a bit of a change of pace just to try something different. And what made you want to become a science teacher then? Well, I did my undergrad in um, biological sciences, so biology. And I've always liked communicating science uh, because I'm really passionate about science. I think it, for me at least, it unlocks the key to the world around us and how we all experience it and understand what's going on with ourselves and what's around us. Um, and I, I like communicating that and helping people have those aha moments, as I call them. But um, and in my final year, one of there was a new programme that was running that was... Um, all about science communication and how we communicate science and I was the trial year of a new style of dissertation and research project um, so I got involved with that and did a lot of research with parents and my, my final year dissertation was all about um, how parents feel supported or not supported with their students and how that that affects their ability to support their children and what different schools offer so it, it was embedded towards the end of my degree but I really wanted to um, make sure I wanted to be a teacher because I, I I knew quite a few people who'd gone into teaching and then bailed out pretty quickly shall we say um, and so I went and did a year um, working in a special needs school uh, to really make sure that's that's what I wanted to do because I've, I've worked with students with special needs since I was about 16 so it's it's not been a uh, a short-term thing for me although interestingly I wasn't really sure I wanted to be a teacher until sort of my final year onwards of my uni despite everybody around me thinking I should be a teacher. 
I think sometimes we're the last to know. I was the same. Everyone in my family is a teacher and they all thought I should be a teacher and I ended up traveling and then becoming a scuba diving instructor and they're like that's just a teacher but just a different version <laughs> so I think you kind of end up with it kind of somehow in your blood I think teaching. Yeah I think it's also to do with the type of person you are I think teachers are a very specific type of person in that you have to be incredibly adaptable it's, it's the type of personality where you're able to take on different scenarios and and drop and change very quickly whereas um there's not a lot of people that I think are naturally very sort of confident with that. I think you can become more confident with it. And I've definitely seen some um, trainee teachers do that. But it, you can always tell somebody who's naturally flair for explaining things. And that, for me, at least, is, is a, a very core part of what being a teacher is. What's been the hardest part, do you think, to kind of translate into teaching? Is there a part that you found difficult from kind of going to your degree to kind of transferring it into learning? I think the part of the problem with science is that there's so much of it and it's the, the curriculum as it sits, how it is, doesn't allow for um, a massive amount of exploration. And that was one of the things that I loved being able to do at university was and even at a level i guess but being able to really explore a topic quite deeply whereas the the curriculum as it is is can limit that sometimes and mean that it's harder students to connect the dots between things and that's often where the joy of science i think comes through when students are able to really start clicking all the ideas together and and it start opening sort of a new world if that makes sense they're able to see the things around them in an entirely different way and I think that's the thing, isn't it, that Adam's book talks about is that it's kind of you need to know the things that the students need to know to be able to access that next level of learning. And I think that's the thing. Science is so broad that it's kind of working out exactly what it is that you need them to know and kind of all the different things that they need to be able to get there. And it, um, <laughs> I love the way he writes the first chapter because it's kind of a lot of questions is like, and he talks through the way he's kind of come up with those questions and how he goes through it and how he questions himself. Are they the right questions? Is that the right skill? Do they need this? And it's like, I think that's very much kind of if, if they don't have those course initial steps, it's really hard for them to then be able to access the learning to be able to stretch themselves the other end. Yeah, definitely. And it's that's the thing with science. There's also a bit in the book about prerequisite knowledge and how it's so connected in science between all the different lessons and how we talk about different things that and the skills it's what in my opinion it's one of the few subjects that really builds on skills and knowledge at the same time at an alarming rate there's there's especially in the GCSE curriculum there's really not a lot of time to go back and revisit things in in that time period so when you're building on things you have to be firm on the prerequisite knowledge in order for them to be able to move forward so that's where the whole retrieval side of things especially one of um adam's specialities i guess um really comes in because being able to make sure that they the students in front of you are able to access the next thing that you're trying to help them access is important yeah that's how i first came across adam as i was a, a norwich researcher back in the day when it was um online because of covid and uh, me and my friends divided and conquered. I think we all took five or six different um, 
sessions to watch and then we all said which one was our best one and then we all went back and watched each other's and and he was my favorite one um at the day and I really enjoyed kind of watching him talk about retrieval and that idea that that constant retrieval the interleaving and then making sure they've gained that core knowledge but it is it's a very it's it's like you said there's so much for them to learn and to make sure it's evenly spaced and also covered the amount that it needs to be covered is really difficult I think in secondary school. Yeah and and also it's very modular in what they learn which seems bizarre because as a topic science is by definition all connected but it's the the way that you teach the course no matter how much you try and connect things there is an element of standalone units and so sometimes with with classes you really have to be um, on it in order to make sure that they feel like they they can link the different ideas because something might not be in their content at all because it's it's triple work or it's higher tier work and so you've you've got to make sure that they're understanding what they're accessing and able to relate it and I, I think a big part of being a science teacher is actually relating it to the real world because the moment that you don't relate it to the real world is the moment that they become disillusioned with it and it just it's too abstract yeah they need to understand the context and the concept as to why it's relevant and and why it applies to their life and I think that does help with buy-in like if they can understand why they need to learn it and what it is um in relation to their everyday lives then they're going to kind of be able to access it a little bit more definitely and I think but I think that's all what school is like I mean I also have the pleasure of teaching um some classes with PSHE and I, I genuinely get the impression that students enjoy most when they're applying it to their own futures and I think that's that's where school can really open up to them the different prospects and different ideas when when different things snap together and I think that's the thing with science is them realizing that actually the skills that they're doing no matter what degree or what course they go on to is important the amount of times that I've, I've stood and explained how when you get the classic but what does it matter um, the amount of times that I've stood and sort of explained, well, you've got to learn how to mix chemicals correctly if you want to go into hair and beauty, because like somebody, somebody's going to get end up accidentally bald. Like it's, and and it sounds one of those weird things, but actually, even saying that to a student almost makes them realise that no, there's actually quite a lot of real world stuff they need to access in science. Oh, I I, I know that that very well with our the kind of what's the point? I'm like, well your clothes, your pencil case, your bag, your book, everything has been designed by some somebody. Like there is there is a point to everything. And I think sometimes, especially students, that they perhaps take the technology that's around them and the things that they kind of experience on a daily basis kind of for granted. Like even even right down to our food is all chemically adjusted somehow now. And I just don't think they quite realise the the level that I think everything that they take for granted is kind of enhanced and appreciated by the science and things around them that create it. Yeah, um, but I think it's also one of my favourite parts of my job is when students come in and tell me all about something that they expanded on when they got home or when they started noticing about different types of leaves and things, which sounds like such a small thing, but it, you can get students who are potentially not uh, on side or who struggle with accessing school um, and I know you've experienced this as well, where they 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 can find it hard to access certain subjects. But sometimes when they come into science, because it is completely different from a lot of their other core subjects, actually they can access it. 
because it doesn't feel like what some of these other lessons can feel like. And that's no disrespect to any of these other subjects because they're core, they're vital, but it's a very different experience being in a science classroom compared to being in a history classroom or an English classroom. It's no more or less rigorous, but it's, it's an entirely different direction. See, I think you're kind of the crossover subject between kind of the practical subjects and like the more theoretical subjects. Because um, I know when I was training, I, um, well, actually, I was an ECT and I was at a school, it was in the second year of opening. So we only had sevens and eights and twelves and thirteens. So I got given a mentor that was a maths teacher and I remember him coming and watching one of my lessons. And at this point, because it was early in the school, they grouped all the children with behaviour difficulties and learning difficulties all in the same class. And when they had their maths and their science and other subjects, they had um, LSAs with them. But when they came to me, that's when the LSA had their free period. And he watched them all doing printing and he, he went and spoke to my head of department afterwards and he went, that was chaos. He went, organised, beautifully taught chaos but I've never experienced teaching like that, like that. I just didn't even think that teaching happened like that. And I think science is a bit like that. You have all the theory that you've got to, to for them to understand. They've got to understand how to do the chemical equation. So they, there's like the maths part, there's the written part, these really technical, difficult words that they've got to spell. And then there's the practical side, which is kind of more of the art side. They've got to understand kind of how things go together and how to physically put them together and and make something and create something, but also kind of log it and do the math side again of, of kind of seeing how the equations and things and the reactions and also being just and fair. And it's quite like there's just so many elements to it. Yeah, and we also bring through a lot of the... Um sort of our PSHE style of things in humanities because we, we talk a lot about ethics. I mean, we talk about the ethics when it comes to fertility treatments. We talk about the ethics with stem cell um, usage. There's a lot of various different things that we pull in quite a lot. And it, I, I would agree, I do think it's the crossing point, but it, it definitely is interesting because sometimes my, I know my class looks chaotic because like I think the last week I had them all hands up in the air was it at the same time open opening their hand and closing their hand over and over again to it was because we were doing an experiment about lactic acid because we were doing anaerobic respiration but our vice principal walked through at the time and the look of confusion on his face with 30 kids arms up in the air all staring at a timer on the board and the occasional oh no i'm out sort of going on um it, it can look chaotic but it's not it just happens to be one of those it, it's a subject that's both incredibly ac academic but also practical because you have to be the, the joining point of the things in science and I think that's the quite nice side of it because the kids can access the different areas and and that it appeals to a lot of students I think that's why a lot of students take it on for a level yeah I think it it's the relevance thing I think students realize that no matter what they go on to do the rigour of, of science and, and the the application of science is so widely used that it's almost, if, if students are, are passionate about it, but equally they're not sure on where they want to go, they know it can open quite a lot of doors because it, it, it is demanding and it is all these skills that you develop alongside it. So employers will tend to look at them, those sort of um, A-levels or degree subjects favourably just because of the 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 range that students have to be able to access in order to do it. They have to be able to write these these essay length answers. They have to be able to learn this incredibly complex language and be able to apply it in different scenarios. It's it's not a regurgitate situation for them. It's they have to be able to 
adapt it and read into different situations and um and understand just how how to use all those terms i mean there's there's a really old saying that's that science has as many new words in its gcse curriculum as spanish does um and they have to that's just the base of the words they have to know they have to then utilize it in all these other different ways and um i think it's just interesting but i think students like doing it because they can really see how they're developing through it I've never thought about that. I like that idea that actually there's as many new words as a language. It just it just shows the real kind of depth to the subject and that the difficulty almost in having to teach it and all these different concepts all at once. Yeah, it's something that they that students also struggle with because I mean, the start of the GCSE course, especially for biology, there's it's lesson after lesson of lots of new terminology that they have to get to grips with. And every year, year in, year out, we see this struggle in the year 10s, especially, where they get halfway through the first year and they, they struggle with all the new words because it's almost like overload to them. And then weirdly, at some point in the year, it all starts to click for them and you see them sort of settle into the language and, and the interchangeable interchangeability of it all. And it starts to work. And you can see students actually then start to, what I would say, fly with it, where they, they can use those, those words, they can apply them to new scenarios and they can really go for it. But there is a lot of language learning going on. And it's off, I think it's often forgotten when we think about science. And I um, think it's that idea, you having to break down the language to help them access it, it is kind of, and if they don't, it's like they said, like if you don't grasp that, it's difficult to then get the next concept and build upon that that they need to know that knowledge and I imagine especially with Covid that you are getting more gaps in the students prior learning when they're coming up. Yeah it's interesting actually because there's gaps in prior learning but there's also uh, and I think you may have experienced this this as well a, a weird gap in practical skills in that the amount of time that like, I've, I've set aside with sort of not just year sevens as would usually be but actually how to use a ruler and how to yeah. put one on a graph and draw a straight line reliably and it sounds like such a small thing but i think with covid a lot of these smaller skills and the practical skills around it have been lost and when we do um experiments in in key stage three we have a lot of skills that interchange with a catering class, for example, because there's a lot of being able to pour and being able to measure and being able to follow instructions like a recipe that um, I know that that we, we're struggling with a little bit more than we have done in the past just because students lack that experience. They lack having done that in class for those extra two years. So I know I often reference different things in my class with the lower years when I know that they're doing something similar in catering so they can actually bring the two ideas together yeah no I'm the same I'm uh today I was teaching my year eights and they're doing this craft foam islamic tile I was saying that they need to measure from the corner to make sure their lines hit the sides at the same point because they're going to rotate it around a fixed axis and it needs to line up and they just really struggled with the concept of just trying to measure with a ruler and make sure it was the same distance on both sides. And I'm like, I've never had a year struggle in quite the same way. And I do, I do wonder whether as we go through the next couple of years, whether we'll see that. And actually, we thought initially at the time that it was kind of the year 10s and 11s that were hit most in COVID. But actually, I think it's going to be the 7, 8s 
and nines that we had during COVID that are going to be hit a little bit more. Yeah, and I definitely think we we notice it in different ways. I think in my previous school, we, we noted how actually the year sevens and eights played a lot more at break times and lunch times than we'd seen before because they they were still in the 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 primary school attitude of playing at lunchtime whereas when we sort of look at the upper school more they tend to be more um leaning towards football or just having a chat whereas the younger years are still very much let's have a game let's play tag let's do this let's do that and i think that that was an interesting shift because it's not just the, the school skills, but it's a lot of the social skills as well. I like, I've noticed it a lot with my form group as well as sort of, the, as you say, the key stage three groups, where actually explaining the social skills in different scenarios becomes very useful. I mean, nobody's, I found that it's very rarely explained to students how to not be friends with someone. And it sounds like a silly thing, but we're kind of, we're all about being friends and being helpful and all these different things. But actually... I, I talk a lot in my classroom about teamwork and you don't have to like the people on your team, but you have to work with them well and you need to learn to work with people who you might not necessarily like. Because, again, it's a life skill. They're going to have to do that regardless of where they end up. Um, but sort of that idea is very interesting for a lot of them in that some of them don't appear to have come across it before. And I suppose also work, uh, working with people that you might not like, especially with like if you're put in a group for an experiment in a lesson, it's kind of very much how you get that team correct can really change the way your lesson goes. Yeah, I mean, we, we definitely do a lot of um, smart seating in science to work out who works well with each other, but also a lot of embedding. I mean, I tend to start whenever I reseat my tables because my tables are on groups of four and I talk about a quad and they, they're working as a team on their quad. They're going to help each other on their quad and they're going to, if, if one side is, is struggling with packing away, then to help them out um, because they are a quad they're going to they're going to be a team that some people need help in some places and some people don't and it, it's a mantra that they that I start off with and I always lead off with because it, it really reinforces to them that regardless of who's on their table they they want to to be the team that's doing things right and all the way through to even year 10 it, it works because after a while you notice that they're just helping each other regardless and we've all been there at the end of a practical class and it's no matter how much time you leave to pack away sometimes it just happens where you're running out of time and it pays off when you've embedded the teamwork because the students automatically instead of just grabbing their stuff and waiting while standing um, actually try and help everybody else can i ask do you have a favorite memory of science when you were at school Honest answer is actually no. I, I had a bit of an interesting... I, I, my school life was not amazing. As my mum puts it, I know you'd be a good teacher, but I don't think... I don't really understand why you did it, considering what your school was like. Um, because my school was quite high achieving, but they tried to cover a lot of things up, I think, within behaviour. And so um, it was one of these schools, and it still is actually, I don't think it's been observed yet, it's one of these outstanding schools that hasn't been done in over a decade um, by Ofsted. But because they had this title, they almost didn't notice or, or, or brushed under the carpet a lot of things. And for example, my science, I my entire GCSE course, my final year of year 11, I didn't have a teacher for physics. And they had to hire tutors in for the last 
four weeks before the exam to get us to learn the, the entire year's worth of curriculum. And it, it, wasn't, a fun, it wasn't a fun experience, I'll, I'll give it that. But I, I think the thing for science was for me is I used to have a, a chemistry teacher who had a rule that if we behaved for a week and a half, the last lesson of the fortnight, we'd just do experiments. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was an interesting behaviour tactic now thinking of it as a teacher, but it meant that as a class, we got to see some amazing practicals that destroyed a classroom, but it was it was good fun. And I, but I just think I, I've always had a love for learning, and I think that's the biggest thing for me. I like getting stuck in deep to things, and I think that's what science allows you to do, and being able to understand all of that. I actually enjoyed it a lot more when I got to A-level, and which is what ends up taking it further being able to get stuck in and understand all the things around you and being able to do small things like you go on a walk and um, you start understanding why you're seeing and hearing the things that you're hearing or you understand why there is a smell after it rains, what is that smell? Um, and all those little things actually, for me, made me love science and then obviously want to go on to teach it because it's, it's all the small things for me. It's being able to look at the birds and understand why the birds behave in the way that they do and being able to transfer that knowledge between things. That's actually, for me, what I always loved about science. See, I was quite, I did I did chemistry A-level and I was quite similar. I was, I was split. I did chemistry, maths, art and history of art, which is a very bizarre combination. Um, but I did love the experiments. But I loved the maths behind the experiments. But I had I didn't have the best chemistry teacher but my form tutor was head of science and she just did loads of extra work with me and I just loved it um so I did really enjoy it but mine I was actually talking to my class about one of my favorite memories is that obviously I'm showing my age now but we're doing Damien Hirst who does butterfly um designs using actual live butterflies that he hatched and then when they died he made the artwork from and they're all like oh my god that's awful and I was like oh well I was at school we used to have animals in jars on the wall and that's how we did our science lessons we'd get them off the wall and we'd talk about them and we got donated to the school this pig that had one head and two bodies and it lived for a couple of hours and we'd get told and that's how we learn about gene mutation and things like that but I just remember being very fascinated by all these things on the wall but science as itself has, has changed as a subject quite drastically in quite a short period of time I think. Yeah they've brought an awful lot down from A level to to GCSE and the, the content has an awful lot more. Um, I was similar actually at A levels I did biology, chemistry, geography and law yeah, yeah, nice combination. Yeah, so I was very split actually because I I love law. Um, I, I still quite enjoy the law, but I could never really see myself becoming a lawyer. Um, but I'm I'm still very good at it. I, I remember accidentally being in a courtroom on a on a school or a, a college trip, I guess, um, to go to to see some uh, a crown court and accidentally sitting next to um somebody on trial. Uh, <laughs> quite a heinous situation. Um, uh, crimes. And and only realising sort of 10 minutes into sitting down and trying to be in this very small courtroom trying to make a hasty getaway. But I, th I think subjects at school, you, you're bound to have all these memories. I mean, for some of these kids, we spend more time with them than their, their, their adults at home do. And, and we have an awful lot more of an effect on many of these students, both, both individually as teachers and as a collective as teachers. And do you think that like practicals have changed especially like since COVID, do you feel like they've changed a bit or do you think it's more of a, it was more of a relief to get back to it so that the students were more involved? 
I think it's definitely a, a, a relief to get back to it. I think COVID forced a lot of innovation um, in how we teach because we all went through this sort of blind period after um, after COVID where we were teaching, but we weren't allowed to be in labs and we weren't allowed to do practicals, which meant that as a science, especially some of the units that are a lot of practicals, we were having to be quite creative in how we presented it. And it meant that I think some things we, we've learned how to do better and some things you're right, it's a kind of few, thank goodness we're back in the classroom and able to actually have a have a practical where they can get involved and see this happening rather than trying to explain it happening yeah i think it's it's getting them to be able to physically do it and and i think that's it isn't it i think you feel like if you physically do the experiment you're likely to retain that information as well yeah i also think i'm not in the school of thought that i think science should all be whiz bang experiments at all but i think that there is something special, especially for the younger students who maybe haven't experienced science at the level that we do in secondary, seeing some of these experiments where they are very awe and wonder and they stand there watching how this sort of ceiling high flame just flies up out of, out of someone's hands or, or various different things. Um, I think that there is an element of, of it really opening eyes because it's, I, I personally think that until a lot of students get to secondary they don't even comprehend that that happens in that with a lot of other subjects at school they have some understanding of what it is like they have quite an understanding of what English is going to be like before they get to secondary or they have quite an experience of what it is getting um creating things or doing art but then when they come into the science lab I mean the the first term we have great fun doing getting them used to using bunts and burners and the amount of kids that are scared I mean, in some ways, rightly so, but very scared of a flame. And we teach them about safety around it and what it is to be safe. And we talk about hazard symbols. And I often get students to have a think and see if, see if on their way homes, they can see any hazard symbols on the back of any vans where, where they're carrying, for example, compressed gas. And I think that's the thing is that the, the practicals can offer this, this amazing experience for students to really open them to actually what science is and what it can do because otherwise we, it's so conceptual that students can't access it. I think that's the thing, isn't it? Like, it's a big jump, isn't it, from primary to secondary to suddenly having a very, like, broad curriculum have, and understanding the three, the differences between the sciences as opposed to them to be taught as one. Yeah, and I, but it also is very dependent. I mean, depending on the school, the size of the primary school, they might not have a science specialist. They might have... Um, lots of equipment or barely any at all and so we often see students coming in in year seven with a whole range of abilities we have sometimes have students who come in knowing more about a particular subject than some of our teachers and they might like for especially with the space module that we do and there's there's some students who come in with very very limited understanding of what science is at all and so helping all the students getting onto to a playing field that they can access and and really promoting them can be quite interesting. And oh, I'm, go I'm going to be, I don't know whether this is a, a, a faux pas to ask a science teacher. Do you have a favourite one to teach? Mm, well, my specialism is biology, so I, I do have to go with biology just because I think it, it seems much more personal to everybody. 
And uh, uh, I know that you're you're very into your plant life growing. You've got your lovely little llama on the side of your room that seems to have encapsulated everybody's um, imagination. Yeah, I'm I'm a big house plant lover. I'm, I'm I'm one of these people that that's got loads and loads of different house plants, and I'm slowly migrating them to to my long windowsill at work. Um, so expect to see more over the the, the next few months. But no, I, I quite like growing things and but I think it also inspires students like I remember when I did my teacher training going into a, a biology school in in Suffolk a biology department in Suffolk and they had an entire greenhouse full of plants and I just thought that's brilliant <laughs> just it really sparks students imagination in a way that they might not necessarily experience otherwise and uh, I think we've just been joined by Adam can you hear me I can can you hear me Hello, welcome to the show. Yes, we can. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we're chatting about kind of all the different aspects of secondary science um, so far. Um, um, I've, we've been commenting about your book and saying how good it is and um, about the, the idea of kind of knowing exactly what it is that you want to teach and understanding the different areas that you need in order to kind of get the students there. It's, it's such a broad subject. It's really hard to kind of almost narrow it down. Sorry. Uh, yes, I mean, like, there's nothing more to say. It is. It's extraordinarily broad. Um, but the, it can, you know, uh, we, we're somewhat handicapped because um, at the Key Stage 3, for example, the national curriculum is really general, generic. Uh, there's a real lack of detail. And at Key Stage 4, a lot of the detail, unfortunately, ends up coming from old exam papers rather than uh, any kind of actual curriculum material um but yeah that just and you know that just kind of emphasizes the point that it's even more important in those circumstances to to make the effort to make sure you know exactly what it is you're teaching and why and it's 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 that isn't it and it's making sure i guess everyone's on the same page so that um all the sets kind of know what they're doing and and kind of building in those skills that the students kind of know how they're going to learn and almost kind of be able to recall that knowledge to be able to access the next section. Yeah, absolutely. There's no, you can't, <coughs> sorry, I've got a really bad cold at the moment, sorry. <coughs> you can't build any kind of uh, consistency across a department um, or a school uh, unless you have done that hard work because you just end up with kids all over the place and some kids knowing this and some kids knowing that and some kids being taught the other and you can have this the, the, the litmus test to, to use the science phrases, if I walked across your department and I observed four year eight lessons, would they all, not necessarily would they be teaching in the same way, but would they at least be teaching the same thing, um, give or take, you know, one or two lessons or whatever, uh, and the odds, are, the odds are generally tend to be pretty low in that case. That's sort of really interesting analogy and a, a great science one um, to see how they're doing. I think it is that I think teaching a subject, you all need to be on the same page. And I think I was saying that this is a, a great book for somebody that's that's coming into teaching and wants to kind of understand how to kind of plan their lessons. But also from like, I think, an SLT point of view, I feel like that they should read this book because it it means that you're able to understand the subject as a whole and how to access it and how to deliver it well. Yeah, well, SLT need to have a good understanding of um, any subject that they're managing or any subject that they're going to be commenting or giving feedback on. Um, so, yeah, it, it is aimed at 
you know, people like that. It's aimed at new teachers. It's aimed at experienced teachers. You know, sometimes people, you know, this this, this is going to sound like a, a bit arrogant, but sometimes people say to me, oh, yes, you know, this is really useful for ECTs or whatever. And I'm like, look, I, I'll be honest with you. Yeah, I, I go to schools up and down the country and I see experienced teachers doing things that I don't think are effective the whole time. Um, I'm very blessed that, that I've been lucky enough to learn from really kind of expert practitioners um, and all I'm doing is trying to kind of translate and disseminate their wisdom uh, and I think I, look, I, I don't think it's radical to say that that practice isn't taking place in all classrooms even the ones who are experienced. But I no think I completely agree yeah. <laughs> but I think it's interesting because hi Adam um, because oh. I think part of that is also because part of the reason why I think it would be not, I agree with you. I think it's good for all levels, but especially for for ECTs. Actually, I was talking to Hannah about it. I think it's quite a good reference book, almost, because um, in teacher training, you very much get taught what to teach and what to do in the classroom. But I think the thing that I really appreciated with your book is this this concept of what you're thinking about before you go into teach and how yeah. you're structuring what you teach, which is I think. Of, a very separate skill that's not taught as a distinct skill it's almost just clubbed in the back of why you do a worksheet in this way and it's clubbed in with the idea of of that and it's it's rarely taught as an explicit skill how to explain something yeah yeah that's that's definitely true um the explanation section is really interesting because it's a bit that i enjoyed writing the most um it's and it's the part of my practice that i enjoy the most is, is crafting a good explanation and I think part of the reason for that is because there isn't much out there in terms of research or like practical wisdom or guidance. Like there, are, there are ba there's basically nothing published about the nuts and bolts of a good explanation. Uh, that includes research articles from education, research articles from cognitive science, it includes books, it includes textbooks, it includes blogs. There's just very little out there. So that's the bit that I enjoyed the most because I had to like think the hardest about it and watch loads of explanations and try and figure out what is it that these explanations have in common uh, and how can I communicate it's, that to others. It's kind of ironic isn't it, that the, one of the biggest parts of anybody's teaching practice is one of the least explained and explicitly taught sections. Yeah I think yeah absolutely yeah. I, th I think there's a few reasons for this I think one is the kind of historical inertia and hang-up that comes with the science academic communities obsession with inquiry-based learning or discovery learning. Um, so because this was such a dominant theme in science education for so long, um, and by definition you're going to be explaining stuff less if you're doing discovery-based learning or inquiry-based learning because um, the whole point is that the kids find it themselves rather than uh, teacher exposition. Uh, so I think that's one cause. Uh, and by the way, that will annoy a lot of people because they'll say, no, this never happened. There was never an insistence on inquiry and we've always done this. Um, look, this is, it's, it's, for me, it's an extraordinarily boring um, argument. All I can say is the facts in front of me. Like I was, I never received any training on explanations. I've never been to any CPD uh, before 2019 on explanations. There are no, you know, if you look in the PGC textbooks, the standard PGC textbooks, science or generalists, there's nothing about explanations. And by the way, I'm not levelling my fire just at, you know, PGC or ITE. Type. You know, if you look in, uh, like, uh, Teach Like a Champion, which is a book I love and I think it's fantastic, but it doesn't have stuff about explanations in it. If you look in Rosenshine, one of the principles says break material down into small steps. Well, great. And then what? 
Um, yeah, and what and, are those small steps? Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and, and look, Rosenstein's trying to be a summary, right? But but that's not my point. My point is that there isn't elaborate thought on this. Um, you know, if you go into Willingham, why don't students like school? There's a section on explanations where he talks about the four C's of an explanation. But I think a lot of that is not relevant for um, the science classroom. And it's certainly very short in concrete examples. Again, that's not to criticise. It's a fantastic book. Uh, it's simply to say that there has been no emphasis on it. Um, wherever the wherever the driver for that has come from, so I think I think part of the driver for that has been the inquiry discovery thing. I think part of the driver for that is this like awful assumption that I see a lot, which is that if you understand it properly, you'll be able to explain it. Um, that there's some kind of innate uh, talent that humans have for explaining stuff, and provided you know the content, you'll be able to explain it, which which I don't think is correct either. Um, and I think I think broadly those are kind of the two forces, uh, the two main forces that have led to this, this extreme underemphasis on quality of explanation. Can I ask what made you decide to write this book? Yeah. Um, good question. Mostly to annoy my wife. <laughs> I was going to say, how on earth do you have the time for starters? By systematically annoying my wife. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so so time again. Look, I, I I was recently asked how long it took me to write the book, um, and uh, it 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 took me over five years to write the book. Wow, yeah. Um, but I only put pen to paper six months before it was published. Uh, I'd been dwelling on the ideas and thinking about them for five years before the book was published. And I've been working really hard at trying to, you know, trying to crystallise and communicate the stuff that I was trying out in the classroom and observing in others in the classroom. Um, the the when it when I started writing, like generally like blogging and stuff, it was just out of a sense of I guess frustration. Um, then it became a sense, and again, this is going to sound ridiculous, but it became like a sense of duty, like people were asking for the stuff that I was writing like I was writing stuff and people were like finally someone's put it into words and then yeah that was that made me feel more strongly like I had to keep writing um, and like the resources that I share and stuff like I don't gain anything from sharing the resources at all um, they're not like monetized nobody pays for them but you know, lots of people use them and lots of people find them useful. So so it would be wrong of me, I guess, not to share those. Um, and then eventually I, I was basically fielding the same questions a lot. People were asking me the same questions a lot. Uh, and I didn't have good enough or clear enough answers for them. Um, and I was... I felt really strong, like I had to figure out a way to put stuff into words um, in order to communicate and, and so that I could answer those questions, basically. Um, I think it's that idea, isn't it, of you wanting to help somebody, but also it's a, a huge amount of your time to like kind of help everybody individually. So I guess this assesses um, that. And I love your little frequently asked questions bit at the back. <laughs> I imagine they're all the questions that you get sent as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. That, that, that's exactly what it is. And and what, what, I, what I was trying really hard to do is, is explain that explicit instruction, which is the method of teaching that I advocate, is, is a system, right? And I didn't want to just write a book about one part of the system, uh, and I didn't want to write a polemic about why other systems suck. 
I wanted to write about this system, and 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 I don't really in the book. I don't really justify it. I don't spend ages establishing the theoretical basis for the way that I teach, because that's not what I wanted. I wanted to just describe the way that I teach, and I wanted to describe the teaching that I'd seen in others that I thought was effective. Um, and I'm quite. I think. I think. I think I'm quite open about that in the book. Um, and and I wanted to show that it was a complete and holistic system, and that. There was no point in just thinking about it in terms of, oh, you know, what is explicit instruction or what is, you know, uh, traditional teaching or whatever, doing loads of retrieval practice. I'm like, I'm like, no, that, that's a part of it, but there's lots as well. And then that's why the FAQs at the back is like a bolt-on, because a lot of the FAQs are not part of the main thing. Like, you know, <laughs> one very popular one is about metacognition, right? It's how does metacognition fit in, in science? And I'm like, well... There's a reason it's not in the main body of the book, because I don't use it. It's not a concept that I think is helpful in terms of making day-to-day classroom decisions. Uh, I do still want to address it, so I just shove that in the back of the book. Because, you know, I get I get at least one DM a day uh, from some science teacher, from some head of science, asking me a question about something to do with science teaching. Um, so I'm getting a DM a day, or at least, you know, a DM or an email every single day. Um, and I want to help as much as I can, and, and so, luckily now, sometimes it's literally like page 75, <laughs> <As> <laughs> to, you know, kind of having to write stuff out a lot. No, that's and great. Also, sorry, it, and it also means that, like, I got to spend more time on it and think really hard about it so I could give people the best quality of response. Like, that metacognition bit, for example, it's just one paragraph, but, like, I would have spent a couple of hours writing it. Whereas when someone just DMs me, if the book didn't exist and someone DMs me, they're like, oh, what do you think about metacognition? Like, I'd cobble something together in 45 seconds or whatever because I don't have more time than that. So it means that I can give people, um, you know, the, the careful thought that they deserve, really. And is there a reason that you kind of structured it in kind of the order that you did? Uh, yeah, it's basically the order in which I think people should think about teaching. Um, teaching consists of, of cycles, right? Where you first specify the knowledge you're going to teach, you uh, ensure students have the prerequisite knowledge to access what you're going to teach. You then explain it. You then check for understanding. Students then practice. You then review and give feedback, and then you repeat. Right. So that's the order. That's the order that I went for. It's kind of yeah, and it does read like that. And there's the nice thing is I think it's actually transferable to a lot of other subjects. Especially I was saying earlier that I think science is kind of that middle middle man almost. You've got the the kind of written elements, you've got the scientific equations that cross over to maths, but you've also got kind of the practical abs aspect to it that goes into other subjects and I think it, it takes a different type of teacher to be able to teach a practical and be able to do it in a health and safety point of view but also for them to understand the science behind it and I think it, it's quite a difficult and you have to be quite confident to be able to do it and be able to hold the room to be able to command that. Yeah I think um, yeah just just to quickly take a step backwards because there's something I should have said that I don't think I did which is I think it's really interesting that you asked um, why did I structure the book that way? Because um, since publication, I felt really strongly that a big weakness of the book is that I didn't make that clear. Um, that I don't, I don't think I circled back well enough to the idea that these are the components of an effective learning sequence. Uh, and I think, I think the book would have benefited from that quite a bit. Just, just you know, a small section just saying like this is. Uh, this is the cycle, this is how it works, this is how you do it on repeat, because also then what it meant is that I didn't really explain how, like, your true, your standard retrieval practice, how that gets interspersed within that. 
because it's not technically part of that cycle, which is really about introducing new content. So, so yeah, I think I think I could have done better on that one. Um, so I'm grateful that you asked that you asked for me. And if John Cat, if you're listening, if you ever second edition, maybe second edition. <laughs> yeah. no, I'll need to get that one past my wife first, of course. Um, so. Yeah, that's oh, see, so see, the little birdies at John Cat told me that you uh, you might be thinking about a second book. <laughs> yeah, no comment. Uh, let's just, uh, <laughs> look, I, I'm, I'm, I'm always I'm always trying to share the things that I know, and there are a couple of projects I'm working on at the moment, fortunately. Um, but yeah, to, to go back to your question about um, uh, practicals. Um, so I just wanted to pick up on your language because I think you said it takes a different type of teacher. I think. Um, yeah, but I'm not sure I would use that language myself because I don't think it's about. I don't think there are like teacher types, and I don't think there's any like quality difference um, in like teaching, in like inherent difference in teachers across subjects. Um, I think obviously the knowledge they bring to the table, their expertise, their desires, their motivation might be different. I think anyone can be taught to to kind of teach anything. Um, provided again, you just put the subject knowledge in place, put the pedagogical content knowledge in place, help people understand what the discipline is, uh, meet, uh, what it means, and, and like it could be that that takes three years, right? Yeah. But, but it is inherently possible. I think the the, the practical science is complicated, and it does span so many kind of different aspects. But I think if I were a geography I were teacher, geography. I'd be arguing that, arguing that geography is you know different in that regard because it's so multidisciplinary and it encompasses economics and social geography and physical geography and, and, and politics and all of that and I think a PE teacher would be saying right well we've got all the theory you know paper one theory is all about anatomy and applied biology and paper two is sports psychology and then we've got data analysis and we've got the practical elements so I think all the subjects are are like really quite distinct and they have their own um, idiosyncrasies and I think I think the, the idiosyncrasies in science are the vast quantity of, of subject matter, the way it branches, it branches, bridges three distinct disciplines, uh, the incorporation of the practical element, the underpinning of the mathematical skills, uh, the and the elements of kind of what we call now working scientifically and stuff. So so yeah, it, it, it is it is complicated, um, but I don't think it's any more or less complicated than any other subject. The, the key is to just recognise the complexity uh, and make steps towards addressing it in the classroom. Yeah, I think it's it's that, isn't it? It is it is the subject that I think crosses over with most of the other subjects. And and by when I meant about the kind of idea of doing a practical, because I'm I'm art, but I'm lead practitioner, so I love kind of going and seeing other schools are, and what people are doing. Yeah. But when I was quite early in my career, I was um, at a new school, so it only had year sevens and eights and twelves and thirteens. And I got put. My mentor was the maths teacher, and he came and watched me do a practical. And he was like that was a whole different type of lesson. Yeah. Like I'd never experienced a lesson like that. So I think it's, it's, it is that kind of, it's an, it's another skill, isn't it? To your bow that you have to learn as a teacher. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. Managing, managing practical. Yeah. Uh, anything when you're managing students who aren't just sort of sat there um, doing standard traditional classroom routines is, is going to be different. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it can be learnt. I think it can be improved. And I think there's definitely crossover. So like um, our design and technology teachers use the slow practical method, um, which is something that we innovated in the science department, but they've taken and used as well because it makes sense in D&T. 
completely. Is there, is there an area that you think kind of pin, underpins it all across it? Is there something that you feel that you're most passionate about across the book? Um, can you, what, what, what exactly do you mean by that? It needs, it needs, it needs to be that order, doesn't it? Otherwise it's going to kind of lose action, but it kind of, what made you put it in that order, if that makes sense? Um, hang on, sorry, I'm not, I'm not following. So I, I think you jumped out a bit, so I lost what you said. Apologies there. Um, I was just thinking in, in terms of kind of working out how you get that sequence, especially within the book, because you were saying about how it, it works and it kind of transfers in the way um, you teach. So it's knowing what knowledge and then kind yep. of making sure you teach it appropriately, that they can yep. understand it and then kind of how you recap it and Im- embed it. Um, and But also kind of having the proper explanations and things like that. So is there an area that you think like perhaps is is like, um, I guess I'm trying to say the area, the bread and butter that that people need to master before they can move on to the next bit. Yeah, that's that's a great great question, um, and I I do not present any easy answer to this question because it's without all of the parts are important, right? And and without them, um, there's no you know no learn like without any one of them, learning is going to be worse, right? Yeah. If I had to, you know, if a school or you or someone said to me, Adam, we can't focus on all of it. What do you think is most important? Um, For me, probably the thing that I would suggest is most important is check for understanding. Um, And the reason for that is because um, without a good check for understanding, you don't know what students know. You don't know whether or not they're ready to practice. With a good check for understanding, um, it's not just that you've you've learnt about what the students know or don't know, but you've also learnt about everything else. So let's say let's say you chose today not to not to focus on your um, on your explanation or whatever. Your check for understanding will show you that your explanation wasn't good enough, which means that the check for understanding itself is going to improve your practice. Most of the other aspects aren't like that. If you do a really good explanation, if you spend hours thinking about your explanation, well, that's grand. It doesn't necessarily tell you anything about the independent practice that students are doing. Um, it doesn't necessarily make you any better at executing retrieval practice over time. But a good check for understanding gives you information about the students, yes, but it also gives you information about yourself. It gives you live feedback about your practice. Was my explanation good enough? Was my prerequisite knowledge check good enough? Um, when I check for understanding during the independent practice, is the practice well-pitched? When a student a student's getting loads of stuff wrong, right? If they are, well, what you've just done is a check for understanding, right? Because you're going around looking at their work, you're checking their understanding, and you're seeing that, well, is the problem with the independent practice or is the problem with the explanation? So it's giving you information about your practice as well as information about the students. And that's why I think it's probably the one that I would focus on first. See, that's interesting, actually, because I completely agree with you on how important it is to do all those, the, the checks and how you do it. But I always think when, I, when I've worked with um, trainee teachers or, or newly qualified teachers, that I always found the explanation is often the one that they may struggle with more and then that affects longer term because I've worked with some students who are really good at their retrieval questions but when they try and modify their explanations it doesn't quite work and it's it's interesting because I I kind of I disagree with you in a weird way and I disagree with you because I actually think none of them work without each other they're they're so reliant on each other that you can't pick one 
Yeah, I, yeah, I, I look, I, I don't, I don't hugely disagree, uh, and I did, you know, I, I did try to say at the outset that I think they're all important. If I was forced to choose one, check for understanding is the one that I'd choose. I think it's, it's possible, it's possible to, give to give a really good explanation. It's possible to give a terrible explanation, and it's possible to give a acceptable explanation, which will still lead to students learning. Whereas check for understanding, if it's anything short of excellence, it's a screw up. So it's a slightly different scale. But but to an extent, I guess we're we're, we're splitting hairs because I don't advocate people to focus on only one. Um, I don't ask people to focus on only one. This would be, you know, and if someone did say to me, we can only focus on one, that is what I would say. But I would definitely encourage people to not only focus on one. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a really good question. I don't have any good answers. Um, and, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a toughie. With the with the bit at the start, because I really enjoyed the 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 list, you were writing the questions as to the things that are important for your students to learn, and then you having like a little conversation with yourself about whether they were the right questions. Yeah. Um, and I guess we always do that, and I find that I do it every time every I teach time something. I teach. Each year it changes. Um, do, do you find that you're constantly adapting, or do you ever ever be like, yes, no, that's the right way? Um, I'm not good at sitting still. Um... <laughs> But at the same time, I do make a conscious effort to try and not to change things once they are good enough, um, because there's there's an opportunity cost, right? If I've got something that's, say, good enough, and I spend time making it great, that's time I'm not spending on something else. Um, yeah, and true. I have to be really discerning about my time, because there are plenty of aspects of my practice which aren't good enough. So I could easily get lost in a rabbit hole of tweaking commas and syntax and this and that and the other, make the core questions, for example, perfect. But um, that's time that I'm not spending thinking about, okay, how am I going to get whole class data during review of this particular bit of independent practice, uh, which is arguably more important. So, so, so yeah, whilst, whilst we could always spend always. more time tweaking and making things better, it's not always the right decision. Uh, and it could be that, you know, if you've got, if every area of a person's practice is to, at the point of good enough, then yeah, invest the time in making individual bits great. Uh, iterate, iterate, iterate. But uh, until, if you're, if every area of your, your practice isn't good enough, then I'd suggest there's always more time that can be spent on something else. You know, marking is a great analogy, yeah? Like, if, if you know, we don't, we don't mark in our department. I'm not head of department anymore, but while I was head of department, people said to me, well, what if a teacher came to you and said, and said, you know, they want to mark, they want to mark students' books. And I said, okay, well, look, what, you know, what I'd say to that teacher is um, you're more than welcome to do it, provided you've done absolutely everything else that, that we've decided together as a group makes quality teaching and learning. So if I come into your classroom and I see that your resources are all absolutely perfect, your explanations are clean, clear, sharp and crisp, your checks for understanding are thorough and detailed, executed with many whiteboards, your independent practice sets are voluminous and interleaved and spaced and you're circulating throughout all of that and you're doing an excellent review, then, then fine, be my guest. If you want to spend your evening marking books, be my guest. But if I come into your lesson... Right. And, and I say, well, hang on, that explanation didn't make any sense. Did you not prepare it? And you say, no, I was marking books over the weekend instead. Then then, then, we, then we have a problem. 
Yeah, no, I completely agree. I, I had a trainee that was like, I need to mark because I need to tick it off. I'm like, well, if you're marking, we're all marking because we need to be consistent. Uh, and I need to know how it's going to benefit the children because if it's not going to benefit the children, I'm not going to make everyone do it. So you tell me and then we'll decide whether we're going <laughs> to do it. So I don't think enough people do that because it's, it's, it's workload as well. You don't do it to tick a box. You do it because it benefits the students. Uh, yeah, exactly. And, 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 and I think that's a really important point as well. Like, Genuinely, I could spend hours working on my explanations. Um, I'd love that, <laughs> but um, but my students wouldn't because I'd be only making marginal gains, and it's time that I'm not spending on other stuff. And I'd turn up, and I'd be then giving them a subpar booklet, subpar booklet. but a brilliant explanation. And they're like, "Well, why couldn't you just give us a good enough explanation and a good enough booklet?" Yeah, exactly. That. It's got to be all areas rather than just really good in one and lacking in another yeah the, the bits that we like <laughs> yeah I, I i am guilty of that one <laughs> um, well, we, we all, look we all are and you know part of part of our intrinsic motivation is being able to spend stuff on the things that we do like you know and and and, and that's where it also gets complicated like if you then said to me no don't spend any time working on the explanations because they're good enough without that time i'd be demotivated and there'd be a knock-on effect everywhere else, everywhere else. So, you know, you've, you, you do have to be careful. Motivation is a fickle beast and it's complex uh, and everything has a knock-on effect on everything else. But, but we do need to be reasonable uh, as well. So what motivates you at the moment with having, ha you must have some amazing motivation to be able to find the time for all this. But what, what's the bit that kind of keeps you going? Um, I don't really know, really. Um, it's a good question. It's like a, a lot of people think I'm ambitious. Um, I'm not really an ambitious person. Um, like this year, for example, in school, I've taken a conscious decision, decision. to not be part of leadership. Um, like it's not, it's not, I mean, I don't know if you could call it, maybe it is a demotion. I don't know. I went from being head of department to not being head of department and not having any managerial responsibilities. Like I guess most people would call that a demotion. Um, but like it made me happy because... The work that I do in school now is around teacher training and development, as opposed to the stuff that I didn't like doing when I was in a department. You know, the I don't know my most. I, I don't think it's any more complicated than I like and want to do the things that I like and want to do, <laughs> like anybody else. I think I'm just honest about it, and at the moment, what I like and want to do is to support teachers. I just enjoy it, and that's I guess where the motivation comes from. I don't know if that's maybe that's a rubbish answer. That's not the LinkedIn answer, is it? It's not the internet. No, I, I think I think it's a very honest answer. I think it's something that we don't necessarily talk about in teaching in the fact that people just think that there's this constant kind of progression and you must get to the top but actually kind of having a good work life balance and having to, doing an area of teaching that you enjoy and you love is actually far more beneficial and you'll get more out of teaching if you're doing the thing that you enjoy and you love than kind of doing something because that's what everyone else seems to be doing. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, yeah, I think that's right. I don't have any particular like career or life goals. Um, I don't know. I just sort of take it one one step at a time. You know. I very much um, just just love the kids. I think I think if you don't enjoy it, it's it's kind of that 
it's it's the bread and butter for kind of getting through the day and enjoying what you do but I agree like I really love the side of teaching teachers and and uh, a couple of years ago I actually had a student of mine one of my very very first students ended up coming back and being my trainee and I didn't realize at the time because I uh, changed my name and and I just didn't recognize it because I've grown quite a bit um so it was kind of like a really nice way a full circle for me that um of having that influence on her as a as a child and then also being able to kind of mold her into a great teacher as well yeah yeah it's really nice it's really important and and different people get their get get their satisfaction from other things like like i've never really been involved in much pastoral work because like i don't i don't enjoy it it doesn't appeal to me um like i do it when you know obviously we're all pastoral to an extent but like I've not never been ahead of year. I don't want to be ahead of year. I bloody hated being a form tutor. Like, you know, different people like and enjoy different things. And, and the thing that I enjoy the most, you know, I love teaching. That's why I'm still teaching in school and hopefully will be for a very long time. But I think probably the thing I enjoy most is working with other teachers. And if you were to tell your younger teaching self some advice, but uh, if you could wind back the clock, what would you tell them? Read Teaching Secondary Science, A Complete Guide by Adam Boxer. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, well, I, I mean, this is part of it as well, that, like, I spent years, years trying to figure out what good, what good science teaching science looks like. Teaching it's, looks like. It's, it's extraordinarily inefficient. inefficient. Um, and, but at the time, like, like what was like, the choice? Like, what what the else cho- was I supposed to do? You know, the stuff didn't exist anywhere. Right? It's, it's ex nihilo. So... It was slow and annoying and frustrating, and I knew that I was getting better as a teacher, but so so slowly, and um, and and yeah, like 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 what else was I supposed to do? You know, our, our trainees are are better at six weeks than I was at six years, by by miles, by miles, and that's because they're in a school where they have a you know a clean and clear vision of what good teaching and learning looks like. It's evidence based. It's it's siphoned and distilled from years of expert teaching and observation, and, uh, and and I'm jealous of them because you know even though I don't regret that time because it's not like I could have done anything differently. Um, it's a shame that I spent all of that time developing so slowly. I do think that teaching. I think teaching's made a huge kind of jump forward to how it used to be, um, and that kind of. I guess that's the the kind of promotion almost of evidence-based teaching is that we know more what better teaching is and how students learn more, that we are able to kind of teach teachers better. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, 100%. Um, there's, there's loads that we know about now that we just didn't know then, uh, especially like bad and ineffective practices that have gone out the window. Uh, there are, there's still a long way to go. There's still a long way to go. It's, it's one of those, I don't think that teaching will ever be done. It's just continuously adapting and changing. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I worry that people think that that's a feature rather than a bug. I don't think it should be that way. I think there probably are, like, universal principles that make good teaching and the application might be iterative and might always need a bit of tweaking and improvement but in terms of like the what, what scientists call the basic paradigm uh i think we're getting closer to approaching not well, i say we're getting closer we're still a bit closer away away but 
we're, we're getting closer towards a paradigm of good teaching uh, and a model whereby what we're asking teachers to do is take this paradigm, fiddle it a bit, tweak it a bit in your context, but by and large, like, this is how it works. You know, for, for, a long time, for a long time, we sort of lionised um, the kind of individual quirky teacher, the ability to do it your own way, um, the no, no best way overall, and the idea that teaching is an expression of the self, and therefore all teachers are like fundamentally and qualitatively different. And, and like, I just, I just don't really believe that. Uh, and whilst you know, there's obviously got to be room for individual flair and creativity and idiosyncrasy and practitioner wisdom and applicability to their class. Um, I think I'm much further down to the end of the spectrum that says, yeah, but there are like universal rules that make, it, make these things very good ideas. You just need to figure out how it slots into your classroom. I think that's an interesting concept because it's it's very true, but it's also on the flip side of the coin. It's very true that there's a lot of um, the old guard sort of group of teachers who met, mess, don't necessarily want to see that and in that they maybe the way that they were trained or the way that they became teachers and then senior leaders and so on and so forth are potentially still have that view and it's very interesting because having worked in different schools and i'm sure you've seen through many of your travels seen various different schools that actually it, it, it as much as you can develop as a single teacher it really does require the department and the school as a whole to make the commitment to evidence-based education and and changes for the future because if it, it's incredibly hard as a single teacher to make that change if your head of department is saying you've got to take books home every two weeks to mark and there's got to be this and it's got to be in this color and so help if there's not a sticker in the right place yeah that's absolutely right, that's absolutely right. and um you've got a chapter in your book about kind of building brilliant sciences how um would you well, I think I lost you there. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, I'm good. I can hear you now, but I missed the question. <laughs> oh, sorry. I'll say that the the kind of idea of building brilliant scientists and kind of really kind of motivating students to really engage with your subject and, and take it on further and and how do we get specifically as well like kind of looking at getting women into science and things like that and how do you and kind of the basically stems really kind of come through the last few years and how we get students to think of science as, as a career and uh, want to follow it through Oh, it's a great question, and there's, I mean, we could do this for literally these topic hours. Um, there's a big movement called the Science Capital Movement. Um, as yet, uh, I've not seen any convincing arguments that teaching in a specific way leads to these specific long-term outcomes that we're looking at. Like, for example, if somebody says, um, uh, you know, uh, let's, let, let's say somebody claims that more group work uh, at A-level physics would result in more girls at physics university. I'll be like, okay, great, let's let's have a look at the evidence. Well, that evidence doesn't exist. What evidence does exist is they'll go to girls and they'll say, um, you know, did you enjoy the lesson more today when they've done group work? And they say yes. And they say, oh, great. Win. Um, but, like, I don't, I don't 
personally think kind of survey data, and I've, I've oversimplified a bit, well, quite a lot, but most of the data we have at the moment is survey based. It's on self-report, it's asking people things about themselves and their beliefs, and I think, I think all of that is, is important and has a place, but it doesn't necessarily tell me what I need to do in the classroom or through my curriculum. Uh, and because of that, I, you know, I don't think there's any hard evidence either way. My best guess at the moment is that the first thing we need to do is help people get really good at science. People aren't going to choose to study science at A-level or at university unless they're really good at science. Um, and so it's our like duty to teach them as well as we can. Uh, there is also the you know the kind of get to be benchmarky type stuff that there's a lot of careers and things that students don't even realise uh, exist. Um, whereas, and you might say, you know, my wife's a dietitian. Like, how many kids in this country know what a dietitian is or that dietitians exist? Uh, probably not a lot. Uh, there are there are kids who will think, oh yeah, well there are people you go to to help you go on a diet or whatever. But like that's not what dietitians do day to day. So. You know, there's definitely a kind of education-y type thing that needs to happen there, um, but 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 it's very very difficult to make very, very difficult to make hard and fast. This is the way it should be. Beyond just teach them as well as you teach. can, and like, like fundamentally, right? If if your science department gets significantly worse results than say the English department, yeah, I'd put my house on the fact that English then has greater take up at A level. Like it's, it's, it's just the way it works. Yeah. So, so the first and most immediate thing to fix in your outcomes, just get really, really good at teaching uh, and then see what happens. And if it's the case that you're really good at teaching, you're the best department in the school and you're still not getting kids taking you up at A-level, well, maybe then start trying something else. But up until that point, I, I, I think all the other stuff is good. And it has its place, but um, we shall have to see if it actually makes a difference. And I'm really sorry, I've got time for one more question and then I've got a jet. Go on, Lydia, I'll leave you with the last question. Oh, no. Well, I was just going to I was going to say if there was one impact you wanted your book to have long term in a 20 years time, someone's using your book. What would it be? Well, in 20 years time, someone will be using my book, <laughs> right? <laughs> that, that would be great. Um, I'd love it. Um, you know, I just that. There is no, the, the one impact is that it helps teachers uh, and people have told me that it helped them. So, so I'm pleased, you know, the more teachers it can help, the better. You know, there are 40,000 science teachers in this country. Um, you know, I'd, I'd love them all to have a copy. I'd love that all, you know, everyone to find it useful. Obviously, that's quite a lofty, uh, a lofty, probably unrealistic goal. Um, but, but the more teachers find it helpful, the more teachers find it useful. That's, that's enough for me. Well, I'm one on your way to 40,000. Yes. Get it. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us tonight. And Adam's book is available from our lovely sponsors, John Cat. So do pop on the website and uh, give it a go. I do highly recommend it. That's very kind. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you, Adam. Cheers, guys. Bye. 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 And I think that's a point of it as well. I do think even if you kind of add it to your little uh, list for somebody within your department and you read it and you but it's, it's one of those that you can't just be reliant on one person in the department if you can use it and work together as a team and come back and discuss the different concepts and be like right now how are we going to apply that to our curriculum that's going to be what benefits your um department yeah i think it's it could definitely be a great way to lead a department's review of of their own progress and actually encourage progress in a non-threatening way because having I, i've not been a head of department so i've not had that experience but i definitely have led 
different groups of people in, in very different ways in, in trying to improve. And I think actually using some of these sections as frameworks sort of, of ideas to go away and try and come back and talk about, I think no matter what stage of, of teaching a teacher is in, whether they're heavily experienced or whether they're new to teaching, I think actually within a department you often have a range of those people. And I think talking about some of these topics would really benefit. I mean, there's a whole section in here about... Um, how we do our explanations um, and what it is and what it's not. And I think, for me, weirdly, that was something that I'd never really considered. Like, you, you always talk about what it is, but I don't think I've, ne I've ever explicitly taught what it's not. And so that's something that I tried and I've been modifying and working out how it fits into my practice. But I think, actually, having a whole department focus on some of these things would be really interesting. It could be an interesting way to do a session by saying, okay, we're going to meet in two weeks, let's pick a focus and we let's come back and review. A little bit like the, um, I can't remember what it's called, but there's some sort of teacher groups that you can do within schools um, where you all sort of review each other's teaching and talk about something about it. I, I think it's it's a great book for, as Adam was saying, no matter what stage of, of career you're in, in actually reviewing and prompting some discussion. I think that's right. And I, um, sorry, I can't work out from the username, um, but somebody who's in their 20th year of teaching science has read the book and said it was very in, um, useful. So I think it just shows that it's it's for anybody at any stage in their teaching science um, career. And like I said as well, like I would definitely uh, be able to manage a science department far better having read it. And even from just a practical subject point of view, it's made me consider the different ways that I deliver things and, and the core knowledge that I want my students to know and I think I think that's the thing like the great thing about the way it's written it, it can make you reflective and he has these little conversations with himself when he's writing the book and and I think that makes it just really accessible and like you're it's it's not just lots and lots of theory that's thrown at you that it it genuinely talks through and gives you examples and kind of explains to you in step-by-steps steps of how to do the uh, the concept that's being in that chapter yeah definitely I think I think you actually mentioned something interesting there which is with regards to senior leadership or whoever walking into a classroom I've, I've worked in in different schools where there's almost been a running joke that when senior leadership come in they don't really know what they're looking at because they may be not have have experienced it before i mean if especially um well i would hope that many senior leadership have have walked through science classrooms and experienced them but i mean i at one point in my previous school i had a, a um deputy head who would once a fortnight just come and sit in one of my classes to just experience what a science class was at with all the different range of what goes on because as Adam was saying, it's very different subject to subject, but we do have a lot of interplay that potentially other subjects don't have, even but just between sitting and standing and moving around the room. We're not high, much more outside like PE is, or we're not very much sat down like a humanities subject would be. There's a lot of interplay and movement between the two things, and um, and that deputy head ended up talking to me about... Deputy or vice? I can't remember. Um, ended up talking to me about actually having sat in my classroom when she was walking around other other subjects, as well as with other, within the science department, she was be better able to understand what she was seeing because she'd seen it before. And I think it's, it's this interesting idea of sort of snapshots when senior leaders walk, or even middle leaders, walk through a department. It's very hard to ascertain what's going on if you don't have the ground knowledge of what is going on.
And I think it is that like you, the, the different ways of science, whether it be you need to learn the theory or you need to know the equations or you need to know how to be health and safety on this practical, you need to know how to write up that practical, you need to have to be, you know, to be fair. Like there's, it's just like the way you have to adapt as a teacher that there are so many areas and it's like Adam said that you almost need to be good at all of them. You can't have one area that you're really exceptional area and an area that other isn't quite, isn't, is a bit lacking that you need to make sure that you're good across it. And that constant checking with the students that they're understanding that you have explained things in an appropriate way that they're going to be able to pick it up and understand it is is and recall it and remember it they're the bits that are going to be what makes you a good teacher and also what makes your students succeed yeah definitely I think a lot of his book talks about how to to become um the best at each of the things and I think he brought up something very interesting as we interviewed him as you interviewed him which was that it's not necessarily getting about getting amazing at one thing. You've almost got to level up each skill and then go back and level up everything again in almost this sort of spiral pattern. Because as you develop one thing, you kind of realise that there's a weakness in another area you need to practice. And the, the book's really good at almost putting you into that cyclical, cyclical thought and making you think about actually, right, well, if you've levelled up your explanations then actually maybe your recall needs to level up. And if your recall's levelled up, then potentially you're thinking about what you're questioning and how your questioning needs to level up. And I, I think that's that's something that regardless of subject or what or the age group you teach is quite important because the, the constant levelling up of skills is is hard for, for teachers. I mean, we don't we do have C P D time, but it is limited. And teachers have such a high demand on their time as it is that often C P D like we're doing now I guess is is carried out in our own time and different people have different demands on that time so being able to level up and have a systematic approach to it is quite interesting and I think this would be a useful way to think about leveling up or improving yourself as well as your department and I think like obviously he got a lot of this from kind of going and observing other schools and other teachers and I do think that that's quite a vital thing to to kind of take your teaching to another level is is to observations don't have to be the scary kind of the big o word like the more comfortable we become and the more we share practice with each other and go and observe each other and and just have little comments um to each other to kind of encourage and also just to see different things like if you see some to watch somebody teach is very different from from teaching and I think we, we kind of don't do that there's a big chunk in the middle where like kind of after you've been observed as like a, a, a student teacher to kind of when you then become the mentor then you start observing again but I feel like it's it's a part of teaching that's it's kind of lost but actually can really enhance and be a positive experience as well yeah but I also think the same lines but flipping it a little bit I never have observed as much as I did when I was a trainee teacher. And we have, su- we have such a rapid improvement in trainee teacherdom, um, as you, whatever route you take. From the first week to six months down the line, you do so much improvement in, in almost all aspects of your teaching. And then once we qualify, we now have the two-year, but it used to be the one-year uh, NQT, now the two-year ECT. And, and even then, 
a lot of it is restricted to any CPD you're doing outside or being observed. But really, from until from when we qualify to when we then level up to become a mentor or head of department, we just stop observing other people. It's very rare that schools give time or encourage or organise for teachers who are not in any of those categories, who are just, in air quotes, standard teachers, to actually go and observe each other. It's not actually that common. And I think that's the thing. If you're going to do a strategy um, and improve as a department, I do think kind of it has to be like a group effort. Like he said, that everyone has to be on the same page and working together. And that's the nice thing about having a book like this to kind of guide you as you go, because you've got something that you can refer to that you can kind of help in terms of like, oh, is have we done it that way? Kind of ha- use the questioning that he uses to be more reflective in, in what you're doing. Yeah, I, I think it always helps to have almost like an external focus. I think sometimes the issue with observations, as you put it, being the big O, is that people often feel that the consequences from them are negative. Uh, I actually think that aside from, um, I mean, I've, I've had the, the token from various different schools where you might get a postcard or you might get um, whatever it may be. It can often be this quite daunting affair because that's what people associate with the steps afterwards. And whether it be waiting to then have your observation feedback afterwards or any of those things that actually that takes the focus off of what it could be. And, and I think to switch it round, it actually needs to be a much more positive affair. And, and you almost need a, a re-learning within a department over what an observation is and how to carry one out. And I know um, Adam's recently done some um, work on producing a guide for that and various different people have as well. But I think it's interesting that the reason it becomes this daunting is because most people's experience with it is potentially in their training year or afterwards it being part of a performance management or it being part of them being judged or them being judged as to if they're good enough to pass their teacher training if they're good enough for this or if they've met the standard rather than it being an entirely positive thing that the people are working together with each other and i I think that's where there's there's real growth opportunity rather than walking into somebody's room and just looking for the negatives, actually looking for what you can learn. I mean, I remember being in, a, uh, in one of my training schools and going and seeing an English lesson. And actually, I learned quite a lot about how the room was, was working and different tasks and how they, they worked and interacted by just sitting in the back of a room. I think there's so much to be said about learning about a student's experience by sitting in the back of a room or to the side of the room and not judging the teacher but actually just observing and that's the thing I think with teaching is that we put so much pressure on ourselves to always be perfect and it's it's not necessarily possible you're not going to be excellent every minute of every day and that's the reality it's like we have this huge pressure that we feel like we have to perform to this standard constantly but actually we need to know that like the way we teach is normal. You do have bad days, you have good days, and, and most of the time it's somewhere in between. Um, but it is constantly trying to develop yourself and inspire yourself. And I suppose, like Adam said, about trying to improve those different facets so that they're good enough for the students to develop from and learn from. And and if anybody hasn't been on one of Adam's CPDs, I highly recommend it. Him Watching him do a live notebook session um, he just he kind of writes and, and goes through his slides live and and they're amazing to watch. So 
um that's like I'm like oh now that's a new goal of mine that I now need to work out how to do so it is like I think looking outwards as well beyond your school is important and kind of seeing that but it's great that he's kind of felt this kind of almost need to write this book to kind of share his good practice because so many people look to him for advice and I think it's great that there now is this kind of place to to go and get that support for your subject yeah and I hope that potentially other schools and for other departments or may follow suit because I think it's it's such um a nice experience to being able to, to read a book about teaching science with that is evidence-based and from this perspective because I think so many things are so generic that we can all struggle to put them into perspective of our own subject because you can almost think that's great and I can see how that would work in some classrooms but that is just not going to work in mine um, for whatever reason that might be um, and so really it's it's interesting to to have all these examples and it was really nice because he's got some great analogies in there about like explaining the digestive system and um, hinterland and all these various different things that i can resonate with because i've been there i've taught that and i understand those issues but i think similar things need to come out for different subjects no i completely agree um maybe if i have some time and find the motivation uh we know that uh always tempted to write a book uh well thank you for everyone to listening tonight and uh, don't forget you can get adam's book from the lovely um sponsors at john cat and i'm going to leave you tonight with um our news thank you very much for joining us this show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading! This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The latest budget has come under scrutiny from many quarters, with many working in education frustrated about a lack of focus on funding for education as a whole. Many have made comments on the £4 billion plan for childcare announced by Chancellor Jeremy Hunt with Paul Waugh writing an opinion piece for the I newspaper. In the piece, Waugh refers to gaping holes in the plan to provide free childcare for working parents of under fives. Childcare providers have already warned of the lack of funding detailed in the plan, and school leaders have expressed concerns that more money will need to be found from their already stretched budgets if the proposed wraparound care is to be provided. Critics have pointed out that the new policy doesn't apply to those in apprenticeships or training and that there is no plan to ensure that an adequately trained workforce will be in place to deliver. The government has responded by proposing changes to the staff to child ratio, moving from one to four to one to five. But this has also raised concerns about a dilution of care. Since the budget announcement, many local authorities have published figures detailing how many children might qualify for a place in childcare under the scheme versus how many places are on offer at this time. Figures broadly suggest that, across the country, demand would far exceed places available. 
many media outlets report on talks between England's education unions and government ministers. The talks will be met with what both sides describe as a period of calm for two weeks, with no further strike dates announced. It comes after breakthrough talks with unions representing other public sector workers, including those. The National Education Union said in a statement that it had, along with the NASUWT, NAHT and ASCO, agreed to intensive talks with Education Secretary Gillian Keegan. The announcement comes after walkouts in Wales and Scotland were postponed whilst unions ballot members on improved offers from the respective devolved governments. In Sunderland, The Echo reports on how former lioness Jill Scott is helping girls have equal opportunities in football, after a pitch in Jarrow was opened in her honour. Scott was part of the England team who lifted the Euro 22 trophy last summer. While she's retired from playing the game, her involvement continues. In a speech as part of the opening of the new facilities, she said that girls and women's football would take priority on the new pitches. The pitches boast floodlights and 3G playing surfaces, and were jointly funded by the government, the FA and the Premier League's Football Foundation. The new facilities link closely to the letter Scott and her teammates wrote to Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss, then Conservative leadership candidates, demanding all girls get the chance to play football at school. Scott said, I fell in love with football at school, and pointed out that everyone should have the chance to do the same. Finally, ITV News reports on comedian Jason Manford's surprise appearance at a Leeds primary school. The comic was invited to the school after a video of him conducting an audience at one of his live shows in a sing-along of popular assembly songs went viral. The Assembly's Bangers sketch has since inspired a fundraising single, with profits donated to food bank charity The Trussell Trust. The comedian joined in with renditions of This Little Light of Mine, Lord of the Dance, and he's got the whole world in his hands. Footage of the visit is already making the rounds on Twitter. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to talk about Deepfake. Deepfake uses artificial intelligence to Amazingly, it's quite easy to do. It starts with a video or image of the target being uploaded to a deepfake provider, deepfake provider found via a quick internet search. The AI then takes over and maps the landmark points of the target's face, just like the filter you find on popular social media apps. This is then overlaid onto another video or text-based script, and hey presto, you have control of what somebody is saying, doing, wearing, or even not wearing. Oh wow. Detecting a deep fake is getting harder and harder. It started with people not blinking, but that was fixed pretty quickly. Sadly, there were lots of people making use of this for the wrong reasons, and our young people are being left to wonder what is real and what isn't. There's even something called a shallow fake, where an original video or audio is doctored using simpler editing tools to change the original message. The main questions you need to ask yourself are, why is this video being shared? When was the video published? Is the message something you'd never expect from that person? and who gains from this video. As always, if you have a tech question, why not send it to at TT Radio Official. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. 
This show is brought to you in partnership with John Katz Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Thank you once again for everybody who joined our session tonight talking about secondary science. Um, and don't forget you can get your uh, copy of Teaching Secondary Science, a complete um, guide from our lovely sponsors at John Katz. Thank you and feel free to come join me on another Monday night show or listen back on Teach Talk Radio to any of my previous shows. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.